Support for Speaking Globally comes from Troy University, dedicated to teaching a new generation to lead change. Information on leadership opportunities available to students from day one is at troy.edu slash leadchange. From Troy Public Radio and Troy University in partnership with the Alabama World Affairs Council, this is Speaking Globally, and I'm Walter Gavan. Welcome back to our podcast, where we look at the history, politics, and culture of different regions and countries around the globe and talk with people who can provide context and insight into some of the most important issues people face. There is no more pressing issue in the world today than the situation with Russia and Ukraine, as Russian forces mass on the border with Ukraine and threaten a military invasion and takeover if their security demands are not met by concessions from NATO and Western countries. As of the time we're taping this podcast, the first week in February, 3,000 U.S. troops have been sent closer to Ukraine to bolster defenses and counter the Russian forces already stationed there. Last month, President Biden spoke about the situation and about sanctions Putin and Russia could face if they choose to invade Ukraine. He's never seen sanctions like the ones I promised will be imposed if he moves, number one. Number two, we're in a situation where uh, Vladimir Putin uh, is about to, uh, we've had very frank discussions, uh, Vladimir Putin and I, and uh, the idea that NATO is not going to be united, I don't buy. I've spoken to every major NATO leader. We've had the NATO-Russian summit. We've had other, the OSCE has met, et cetera. And earlier this week, President Putin responded in a press conference of his own as NPR's Moscow correspondent Charles Maines reported on All Things Considered. You know, in comments to reporters at the Kremlin, President Putin repeated what his ministers really have been saying all along, that uh, Western powers had thus far ignored key Russian security demands regarding NATO's expansion eastward and into Ukraine in particular. But Putin had a new line of argument. So here Putin is saying, let's assume Ukraine becomes a part of NATO and tries to forcibly retake Crimea. Uh, What are we supposed to do then, said Putin, go to war with the NATO bloc? And so it is with this standoff at the border that we start our conversation today. To help us make sense of this dangerous and volatile situation, my guest today is Dr. Ralph Klim. Dr. Ralph Clem is Emeritus Professor and Senior Fellow at the Stephen J. Green School of International and Public Affairs at Florida International University. He holds the MA and PhD from Columbia University in Geography with a concentration in Soviet studies. He is the co-editor of seven books, including most recently, Political Geographies of the Post-Soviet Union, edited with John O'Laughlin. His published chapters and articles are numerous, with extensive coverage of Eastern Europe. He also frequently publishes blog posts recently concentrated on Russia, Ukraine, and international security issues. 
He is also a retired Air Force Reserve Major General with many decorations, including the Air Force Distinguished Service Medal, Defense Superior Service Medal, and Legion of Merit. Dr. Clem has testified on over 75 occasions as an expert witness in United States immigration courts in matters involving asylum seekers from Russia, Ukraine, Belarus, Kazakhstan, and Uzbekistan. Just a note, we taped our conversation with Ralph Clem in the last week of January 2022. Welcome to Speaking Globally, Dr. Clem. It's great to have you with us. General Gavin, it's my pleasure to be with you today. And before we start, my kudos to you and the people at Troy University for undertaking this international analysis and outreach program. And again, it's my pleasure to be aboard today. Well, we feel very fortunate to have an expert with your insights into this situation, helping us understand it. And as tempting as it is to dive right into the current events, I think it would be helpful to understand the historical context that underlies this situation. We tend to look at the Soviet Union as monolithic, or maybe the average person does, but Really, it truly was a, a union of Soviet socialist republics, obviously under direct control from Moscow, and no one could really resist that particular kind of control. However, there were things done, and I think this is sometimes lost on people. And so Khrushchev, uh, for example, in the 50s, made some moves uh, specific to Ukraine that really are relevant to the situation we have today. Could you uh, give us a little insight into those? I sure will. That is reference to Khrushchev's decision to transfer authority within the Soviet system, within the Soviet Union, to transfer authority of the Crimean Peninsula to Ukraine. That was controversial at the time. Obviously, it's become a thorn in everybody's side going forward from the 1950s to the present. And that Soviet construct that you refer to as a quote-unquote union of 15 quote-unquote sovereign republics is crucial, again, key to understanding how we got to where we are now. And actually, if I'll just take it back maybe one step further and say that, of course, the Soviet Union inherited the geographical legacy of the previous czarist empire, which began to form or to take shape somewhere in the 18th century, right up until the time that it collapsed in 1917, to become the world's largest land empire and containing, as you noted, members of dozens, literally dozens of different ethnic groups, or as they refer to them as nationalities, within the Russian empire. So, when the Soviet Union was formed in the early 1920s and later expanded after the, the Second World War, but when the Soviet Union was formed, Lenin and Stalin had the idea of managing this ethnic diversity by, that it inherited from the Russian Empire by setting up the 15, again, so-called sovereign republics that constituted the USSR. Now, the reason that that becomes extremely important is that the boundaries of those, the geographical boundaries of those 15 union republics became the basis for the creation 
of 15 new sovereign states when the Soviet Union collapsed in 1991, what they call the parade of sovereignties, that all of a sudden these different regions of, of the Russian Empire, later the Soviet Union, were stood up as sovereign independent states. And that's not historically unprecedented, by the way, that there's a long legacy in international law of how states that were formerly not sovereign can become sovereign, and specifically what territories do they control. That mainly came out of the decolonization of the British and French empires after the Second World War, when you create, for example, let's say an independent Sudan or an independent Nigeria, uh, independent India, how do those particular states actually morph into, you know, something that is a coherent national entity? And that has proved problematic everywhere. I mean, the civil wars, internal strife, that is a legacy of that kind of decolonization format from colony to state within the same borders. That's exactly what happened in the Soviet Union. In the aftermath of its collapse, all of a sudden now, you've got these 15 new countries, but the borders that they are constituted in were the same borders that the Soviet Union had uh, internally, the 15 Union Republics. So those borders were never meant really to be sovereign states. They were, as you noted, they were meant as a, a management tool by which the, the communist uh, leadership could make sure that these different ethnic republics remained under their control. And of course, ultimately that backfired because now all of a sudden in the late eighties and into the first couple of years of the 1990s, you had these independence movements start to crank up as Gorbachev's rule became less and less stable. And eventually they all broke and broke away and set themselves up as independent countries, again, within those same boundaries. There really is a sense of an independent identity still. And we certainly see that after the fall of the Soviet Union playing out in Ukraine, ultimately leading into events like the Orange Revolution and then the Maidan protest that ultimately got us into this crisis situation. Now, yes, there, you know, there are Russian ethnic uh, groups in the Donbass and in the eastern part of Ukraine, but um, the Ukrainian people more in the, in the rest of the country seem to have been pretty, uh, at least recently, very emphatic that they want independence and they want to get to choose who their partners are. Well, that's exactly right. But that didn't happen overnight, that creating a Ukrainian national identity, not a Ukrainian ethnic identity, but a Ukrainian national identity, became obviously a requirement for having Ukraine, what, just now a little over 30 years experience in trying to build not only a government and all of the different elements involved in governance and providing health, education, welfare, incomes, and so on to its citizenry, it had to construct a national identity. And that was, again, difficult from the outset because of this, these long-standing historical ties between the Ukrainian people and the Russian people 
and the fact that their populations kind of overlapped the border, that was never going to be easy. It was easier in some of the other former Soviet states, like the Baltic republics, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, who had not been under Soviet rule for as long as Ukraine had been. So in in those cases, a very strong national identity was already in place. And so how do you go from this kind of what quasi-state of a union republic to a freestanding, sovereign, independent Ukraine? That's Again, that's not going to be easy, and it's going to take a while. The problem being that the Russians were never comfortable with Ukraine being a full-up sovereign national state to begin with because they see Ukraine as either, in Putin's view, Russian President Vladimir Putin's view, that Ukraine has always, quote-unquote, been part of Russia, together with Russia, uh, sharing a kind of a common geographical space. That's not necessarily true, but the point is that that's the logic that the Russians are operating under. Now, let me go back to the Ukraine, let's call it state-building aspect. I mean... Again, how do you stand up all of the different parts of governance and establish political legitimacy in that country? Well, one of the ways that you might do it is, again, to start thinking about Ukrainian ethnic identity and Ukrainian national or state identity as the same thing. If you do that, and most countries, many countries have done that because that's a very powerful binding mechanism for countries to say, we're all the same people. If you do that and you focus on Ukrainianness, if I can, if, if you allow me that term, that then begins to cause problems for the ethnic Russian minority who see themselves being what, I don't want to say ostracized, but marginalized within the new Ukrainian national state, that becomes problematic. Let me also say that in this kind of beginning maturation process, as the Ukrainian state, national state begins to mature, there's a very strong generational divide in place. Simply put, the people who were born during the Soviet period and who did not see themselves as ethnically or nationally Ukrainian are older people, obviously, and the younger generations that are coming up now, either being born or having matured during the post-independence period, those people have much, much stronger ties to Ukrainian as a Ukrainian state. We obviously saw the protest in 2014 and the desire to really look west toward the European Union and to partner with the European Union, which the events associated with that in general obviously precipitated Russian action, both in terms of the seizure of Crimea and then the uh, irregular forces in the Donbass giving us a frozen conflict there. 
You know, we've been dealing with that now for, it's hard to believe that it's been 10, since 2014 in some ways. That's right. Now we find ourselves again with Russian forces very openly massing on the Ukrainian border and threatening military action. Uh, they seem to be using their full playbook, conventional military forces, cyber attacks. We've heard uh, talk of false flag operations. They've the frozen conflict ongoing, an extreme diplomatic posture that is demanding concessions that Ukraine would never join uh, NATO. This is pretty risky and dangerous behavior by Russia. Why now? Well, as you know, it actually goes back to that 2013-2014 period, which is, looking back on it now, is clearly a pivotal moment in the geopolitics of that region, especially Ukraine-Russia relations, but, as you also note, has become something of a crisis situation for Europe in general and for the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, the NATO alliance, including the United States and Canada, in particular. So let's look at that and think, if there's, was there anything in that period that might have given us a clue as to how that situation was going to evolve into a, as you noted, a long-term bloody conflict. There have been well over 10,000 people killed in those eastern regions of Ukraine since the heavy fighting broke out in 2014. So how did that precipitate? We need to go back just a little further and look at the regime, the Ukrainian government, uh, political government that was in place in that 2013 time frame, headed by a man named President Viktor Yanukovych, who was openly pro-Russian. His party was espoused closer ties with Russia. But the country's mood, again, the larger country's mood, and in particular, again, those up-and-coming new generations, those people favored a more, as you said, a more Europe-focused European-oriented focus uh, with the European Union as their primary goal, but never forgetting that large numbers of Ukrainians in the political apparatus, if not in the population in general, also wanted to push the agenda for eventually for NATO membership or beginning the process by which they could eventually accede to NATO. So looking at that situation in late 2013, when Yanukovych looked like he might be willing to compromise on the EU dimension, he came under very strong pressure from the Kremlin to abandon that effort, which he did in November 2013. And then that precipitated the huge popular uprisings in Kiev and other cities across the country that eventually resulted in early 2014 in his expulsion and the marginalization of his particular political party. And the Russians simply couldn't abide that. They made a, a strategic decision that they were going to push back hard and uh, put the brakes on Ukraine's ambitions to be more European-oriented. And in so doing, of course, first they took over Crimea by uh, a relatively bloodless, clandestine, and then more open uh, military operation. And then importantly, after they had 
Crimea secured, they invaded eastern Ukraine. And, and I'd like to make clear that's often described as an incursion or a sponsorship of an internal. Pro- Remember, those are the people in eastern Ukraine who are, to a very large extent, ethnic Russians. So the, the Russians initially tried to foment a phony rebellion in those eastern regions of the country, and that failed. The Ukrainian government got its act together, launched a big military counterattack against these faux uh, separatist insurgents, most of whom were criminals and miscreants of various kinds, uh, again, abetted by Russian military intelligence. And when that happened, this is where the Russians made their critical decision to send in their own army. And that's an extremely important point to make here, that the idea that the Russians were just kind of like puppet masters and kind of, you know, handling the, the situation remotely is not true. Uh, there have been clearly identified uh, units of the Russian army, the regular Russian army, who crossed the border and attacked Ukraine. Well, we certainly know that the Russians have the capability to invade and to occupy whatever part of uh, Ukraine that they want to. It's, again, a very daring and would be uh, a condemned uh, completely by the international community, of course, as an uh, invasion of a sovereign state. Let's look at the cost side here. We, we've, we've talked about what Russia wants in terms of control and uh, pairing, prying away uh, Ukraine from the West. But what are the costs that you see if Russia does take direct military action? At this point, we can, I think, realistically surmise that a variety of uh, economic and some non-economic sanctions would be activated, slapping all sorts of trade restrictions and other financial restrictions on Russia should they, in fact, uh, come across the border again, and this time even stronger military force, much stronger military force force than they did back in 2014. They, of course, are aware of that. They will, or he will, speaking specifically of Putin, have factored those into his risk-reward calculation here. The extent to which that would actually work, that the sanctions would actually work, is really not clear at this point. And the reason being that some members of the NATO alliance are not enthusiastic about essentially rupturing their relationships with Russia, uh, in particular with regard to uh, the supply of energy, specifically natural gas, most importantly, to some of those NATO uh, member states, especially in, as things are developing, especially in the case of Germany. So President Biden alluded to that in his press conference, that it's not really clear what level of punitive measures the alliance and its member states would undertake should Russia invade. And then the idea that those responses to to Russian military action might be in some way dialed up or dialed down, depending on just exactly what the Russians did. Did they launch a small punitive raid 
or did they send 150,000 troops into Ukraine and seize the western, excuse me, the eastern one-third of the country? And everything in between, all the options in between, cyber attacks and other sorts of uh, clandestine operations in Ukraine. What would we do if they did that? What would we do if they, again, launched a relatively small uh, military incursion? And then what would we do all the way up to if they sent the whole kit and caboodle into Ukraine and basically took over a large part of that country? Uh, We don't know. Well, I think the the question that a lot of us are contemplating, is there a way out and what might be that way out? There might be. As uh, the strategic analysis people say, there might be an off-ramp. I'm not sure that it would, in in fact, be a a long-term real solution, but there are means by which the two sides could at least agree that they have to understand each other's strategic concerns. And I've put this idea out there before at the risk of sounding like an appeaser. All of that military activity that I referred to before and the fact that it is ramping up steadily over time with uh, you know, both the Russians and NATO beginning large-scale military exercises. Uh, the president uh, and the senior national security staff apparently met over, over the weekend um, and decided that they would present the president with options to uh, enhance U.S. forces uh, in the European theater, uh, either uh, by you know bringing in in other troops and aircraft and naval vessels from from the U.S. or by you know encouraging our NATO allies to again begin uh, taking this threat more seriously, which they are, many of them are. It raises again the possibility that we might be in a situation where an inadvertent incident of some kind, uh, like a mid-air collision. Uh, between a Russian aircraft and a U.S. NATO aircraft, those kinds of things can spiral out of control very, very quickly. So the question would be, is there anything that we could talk to them about uh, that they would be interested in doing to reduce this very high operational tempo that we see right now uh, and to use the military term with which you'll be familiar to de-conflict Uh, the sorts of military activities that are going on now to avoid these kinds of uh, potential mishaps and at least be talking to each other. As two veterans of the Cold War, this has been uh, all too familiar a conversation. Uh, I I keep going back to uh, sitting alert at Bitburg, Germany in my F-15 and uh, scrambling when someone would come across the inter-German border Uh, I'm afraid we're back to those kind of days. Dr. Clem, this has been a great uh, conversation. I very much appreciate your sharing your insights today. Uh, As we've said throughout this, it's a fluid situation. I know we're going to have an opportunity to follow up on it, and we look forward to chatting with you uh, again soon about uh, the situation. And I likewise look forward to that. And again, thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. 
My guest today has been Dr. Ralph Clem, Emeritus Professor and Senior Fellow at the Stephen J. Green School of International and Public Affairs at Florida International University. Our podcast is recorded in the studios of Troy Public Radio on the Troy University campus and is produced and edited by Kyle Gassett. I'm Walter Gavan, and I look forward to talking with you again soon on Speaking Globally. Support for Speaking Globally comes from Troy University, dedicated to teaching a new generation to lead change. Information on leadership opportunities available to students from day one is at troy.edu slash lead change.